All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And I must tell you that I am becoming very much uh, more interested and excited about this sector. It's been a a long uh, couple of pretty tough years uh, in the junior sector, but I believe uh, for reasons that we'll discuss later on over the next couple of hours, uh, we may be at a turning point. Uh, We may be looking up at something much better uh, in the gold sector during the second half of this year. I'd like to also tell you that that my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And with regards to Chen's letter, you do need to put your name on on a waiting list, and for that, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, just uh, go there, click on the Chen button, uh, and enter your name and email address, and in the order of receipt, uh, he, Chen will be accepting new subscribers at the beginning of the next quarter, that is uh, the first uh, business day of July. Um, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I uh, want to invite you uh, to keep your questions and comments coming to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I'd also like to invite you to follow me on Twitter. You can do that. Uh, my handle is jtaylormedia. Uh, I want to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors uh, for today's show are Caden Resources, Uranium Energy Corporation, and Go Gold. Uh, we will be talking to Terry Coglin. He's the CEO uh, of Go Gold next week. Uh, Go Gold uh, is selling at about a dollar fifty-three, 140 million shares outstanding, but they are just now entering production. Uh, and uh, very exciting company. It didn't take them too long to get there. Uh, a very successful management team in the past, and I expect uh, some good things to come from Terry Coughlin's uh, Go Gold Resources. Uh, we will talk to him next week to get a better handle on uh, what he's expecting uh, in the way of gold production this year and beyond. Uh, Caden Resources, also another sponsor, doing very well. Forty-one point three million shares outstanding, a dollar fifty-five today. Lots of cash in the bank for Caden, uh, and surrounded by uh, by. Um, uh, a major gold mining company, Gold Corp, actually, and uh, with, uh, I think, a huge upside potential. Caden is also a favorite of mine. Uh, and Uranium Energy, we spoke to uh, the CEO, Amira Nani, last week about Uranium Energy, a company that is growing very nicely. Uh, tough times right now in the uranium patch, for sure. 
just as tough as has been for the gold producers, I guess. But uh, uh, Amir is doing a great job of consolidating assets at this time when they can be acquired at very low prices. And a uh, very strong management team headed by Amir. Uh, I think uh, uranium energy producing one of the few new producers of uranium in the United States over the last number of years. And Amir is, uh, I think, doing a great job there. So uranium energy selling at $1.73 today. Um, and uh, we'll keep you posted on that story as well. Uh, keep your questions and comments and um, whatever you'd like to tell us coming at questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I do read all of the questions that come through, uh, and uh, they're helpful in understanding what your thoughts are. Today's show, we're going to have Jeff Deist, uh, Daniel McAdams, and John Kaiser joining me in the first hour here at the Voice America Business Channel. And then David Jensen will join me in the second hour to talk about the precious metals markets. And I will also replay an interview uh, of a few weeks back with Larry Edelson, in which he talked about the uptrend in the war cycle and how that is very bullish for gold and commodities in general. Well, certainly, uh, I'm not one that wants to see an uptick uh, in any kind of war cycle. That would be uh, really immoral, I believe. Uh, but it is what it is, and so we need to prepare ourselves and uh, and try to protect ourselves as best we can financially. And so uh, we'll hear what Larry has to say in the second hour, as well as uh, David Jensen, who will be joining me as well. We'll be talking to David about, uh, well, the various things in the market. Uh, the Platinum Group metals, uh, something that David is really, uh, really keen on, and uh, the interaction, what's going on now uh, with Russia and China and the BRIC countries as a whole as they prepare uh, to compete uh, against the U.S. dollar system, or uh, perhaps it's just a matter of trying to preserve their own uh, or protect themselves against holdings of, of a fraudulent U.S. dollar. We'll get David's thoughts along those lines. In just uh, a couple of minutes, John Kaiser will be joining me to talk about a couple of very exciting junior gold stocks that have the potential to earn big returns with limited risk. Um, given the fact, I, I believe uh, both of these companies are companies that are using other people's money, they may be employing a prospect generator model. John always has a lot of really interesting ideas. Uh, he does his own very unique research and uh, has come up with some really big winners over the years uh, in the diamond space and elsewhere. So we're looking forward to talking to John in just a couple of minutes after we come back from our first break. Um, I would say that uh, with respect to our other main guest, Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams, both of them, of course, worked for Ron Paul when he was in Congress. And Ron entered politics after, uh, well, he was a medical doctor first and went in uh, to serve during the Vietnam War uh, and then started uh, reading about Austrian economics and started realizing how destructive government intervention in the economy and the monetary system is to our liberties as well as our prosperity. So Dr. Paul understood that our founding fathers drew up the Constitution to limit government powers so that we, the people, could be free to be who we were created to be and in that way uh, enjoy life to its fullest potential. And um, so Dr. Paul is always determined to stick uh, to the constitutional ideals of our founding fathers. Uh, and 
never would he bend from that when he was in Congress. And so he chose a couple of really no-nonsense guys to work with him, both of who will be here, uh, Jeff Dice, who is his chief of staff, and, and Daniel McAdams, who advised Ron Paul on foreign affairs. Uh, both of these gentlemen will be joining me at about a half past the hour, uh, and we'll be asking them both about some of uh, the current policies uh, and get their comments on that. Um, as I mentioned, David Jensen will be with me in the second hour. Uh, and, you know, very interesting, uh, we talked to J. Michael Oliver last week who talked about um, the four basic markets that he thinks are very closely correlated. Those markets would be U.S. stocks, uh, European stocks. Uh, and then he looked at the U.S. dollar and gold. And for reasons that Michael doesn't care, really doesn't care about, I mean, he looks, he's a really a technical analyst, but his momentum uh, measures are suggesting that we're seeing a topping out in the equity markets, both European and U.S., and that we're seeing a bottoming out in gold. And he thinks that gold and the dollar will get stronger together. Uh, so a uh, very interesting concept, and we'll talk to David Jensen about that as well uh, during the second hour. But we are coming on uh, the first break now. We do want to get to John Kaiser uh, in just a minute or two. Uh, so we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we'll be uh, trying to find out what John has on his mind with respect to a couple of junior exploration companies that he thinks has the have the potential uh, to make major discoveries. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with John Kaiser. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Go Gold Resources, considered a buy by several well-known analysts, is soon to be Mexico's newest gold and silver producer. With two impressive developments, Go Gold's Paral Tailings Project, with first pour anticipated in May, is expected to produce 1.8 million ounces of silver equivalent per year, generating a steady 12-year cash flow. Santa Gertrudis, a past-producing gold mine, could potentially be put back into production by mid-2015, advancing quickly and led by a team of experienced mine builders. Go Gold is one to watch. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Kaiser. John's been with us before, so I don't want to uh, take valuable time to read his uh, his impressive bio, but you can read it at the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, go to uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times site at the Voice America Business Channel. Pull down John Kaiser's um, on the pull-down menu, and you can read all about him. Uh, but he does have an excellent service, and you can avail yourself to that service. There's some very interesting free stuff there, I might mention. Uh, but uh, you get what you pay for. Well, I think you get more. You get more than you pay for when you go there for free. But Kaiser Research Online uh, is the place to go to for some interesting free stuff. But if you really want to avail yourself to John's talents, uh, there is a subscription service which you can uh, avail yourself to by going to that site as well. Thanks for joining me again, John. Okay, it's great to be back on the air with you. Really good to have you with me now. Uh, you noted at the Vancouver conference, which I did not attend this time, but uh, I understand you were there, uh, that we've been stuck in a narrow range here in the resource sector. Uh, just go over those, the reasons for that and, and what you think we might need to break out of this, uh, of this funk that we've been in for the last two, three years. Well, there, there's a sort of three core narratives by which that, that attract an audience to the resource sector, and all three of them are right now uh, stalled. The one is the macroeconomic trends that talks about super cycle, where we see uh, higher metal prices emerging as a result of a growing economy, generating demand for metals, which the industry is not equipped to uh, supply, so we see higher prices. That pulls money into resource juniors. They put that into feasibility demonstration, and that's what the last decade was all about. Then there is the gold sector, to which the juniors are very much tied. When gold was running towards 1400 earlier this year, it looked like we were turning out of that four-year, three-year bear market that we had. But then when gold retreated back to the current level and the drum beat about 1100 gold as the next stop uh, starting up again, the juniors have followed all suit. And there's no real argument uh, to expect a, a higher real price for gold in the short term. So the juniors are sort of languishing, and the advanced projects, well, they're not getting better because of a higher gold price, and we are still dealing with rising costs because there is still uh, inflation. The third way is to make big discoveries, and we haven't had any big discoveries uh, for a while because the focus has been on advanced projects, and uh, right now we don't have an awful lot of capital going into juniors to enable them to do the kind of uh, exploration needed to deliver world-class deposits after a 30-year exploration boom. And so I'm looking at a couple companies that I introduced at the Vancouver show saying, here are ones where majors are partners with very big-picture conceptual targets in mind, and they're spending a lot more money than a junior can possibly raise, and they could deliver uh, off-the-scale discoveries in the next 12 months, which uh, restores the market's faith that, yes, juniors can still deliver world-class discoveries. All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of those, John, and I might just tell our listeners that uh, John's paid service has a lot of, of, of very good, I mean, all of these, I believe, I believe, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but the couple of companies we want to talk about today are companies that you cover on your, uh, in your service. Is that right? Yes, they are. They are both open recommendations oh. and, and stocks in which I own shares. Okay, good. So the first one is Arupa Minerals, and I believe that's spelled A-V-R-U-P-A Minerals. Trades in Toronto under the symbol A-V-U. 39 million shares only outstanding, 19 cents. So it's got a very small market cap, $7.5 million. I believe they're involved in Portugal and the former East Germany and uh, Kosovo. Is that right? 
That's right. They are a European prospect generator headed by uh, Paul Kuhn. Okay, so what's the big deal here with this company? I have a, a number of prospect generators on my own list, John. What, what's special about this one? Well, going way back to Roman times, there is a belt of rocks that straddles Portugal and Spain called the Iberian Pyrite Belt, which uh, has world-class uh, volcanic massive sulfite deposits that uh, host uh, copper, zinc, gold, silver, and even tin. And in fact, the largest, second largest deposit in the world, Navis Corvo, was found in 1977. Now, there's a portion of this belt which is covered by younger rocks than the uh, period where the deposits formed. And so mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to find anything. And there's been a lot of work done in this 40-kilometer segment in the past 30 years, but nothing has been found. Paul Kuhn came up with a new concept as to how the stratigraphy works, and he was able to attract Antofagasta, the copper miner, mm. as a partner, which can earn 80% uh, by delivering a feasibility study. And they have spent the last three years, $4 million, testing Paul's theories, and not a lot of success, but a lot of sort of that data gathering that is required to flesh out your concept about how does this system work? Where should we really be, we really be looking hard? And in February, they pulled the first VMS intersection in, in 20 years in, in the entire Iberian pyrite belt, and they now believe they have the keys to stalking the elephants under this 100-meter cover of, of absolutely worthless rock. Mm-hmm. So they have had some success in the, sen- in the sense of, uh, of putting together a geological puzzle then. You, you say they haven't had much yes. success. I guess what you mean is they haven't had a lot of, uh, let's say, commercial intersections of anything yet. That's right. It, it is a geological puzzle because the stratigraphy is turned on its side. It has been chopped up through faulting, and, mm-hmm. and, and there are certain horizons where those smoker systems formed. And the trick is to, to piece it all together, see how it works, whether it's upside down or, or, or right side up, find out the marker horizons, and then generate the targets where you have high hopes. And they are now shifting into the mode. They're going to go another 3,000-meter drill program to follow up the, the six holes around this target area. In the, it's called the Alvalade Project. And the, the optimism now is that they are homing in on the target. And Navis Corvo, it's like a 300-million-ton system of seven mm. deposits that were in some form or other connected. And they think they may have picked off the tentacle of an octopus of this nature. And Navis mm. Corvo is about 60 kilometers to the southeast and a part of the belt which is not burdened by these uh, cover rocks that obscure everything. So if they find a, a Navis Corvo-type deposit, even though they have only a 20% interest, the stock could go into the, into the double digits because it would have a piece of a world-class asset. And it has risen from sort of the five-cent level it was at the start of the year to as high as, I think, 25 cents, and is now slumbering in the 15 to 20-cent range, waiting for confirmation that we have the discovery, and now it's just a matter of de- doing delineation drilling to uh, uh, map out the geometry of the discovery. Yeah, and and John, of course, uh, with only seven point uh, five million dollar market cap, I think that needs to be emphasized because if they do find anything of uh, that's that's attractive enough to uh, to keep Antofagasta in the in the game, uh, it's going to be very very meaningful relatively uh, relative to uh, this company's market cap. So that's why you can get a huge run up and a double digit gainer 
very possibly, of course, uh, with some success. So, very interesting. Are they, are they planning uh, so 3,000 meters this year, this summer, John? Oh, oh just to start in mid-June, and these are these types of programs which just follow after the other. Now, now when sure. you do the $7.5 million market cap, you do need to multiply that by five to, ref- to, to value the project on a 100% basis because they sure. net only 20% at the end of the day. But even sure. if you do that, you come up with a, a $30 million valuation. Yeah. When we're talking about Navis Corvo, we're talking about something that is worth a couple billion dollars, sort of right. kind of like a Voises Bay when, in, in, in 1995, which got taken out for $4 billion. So you're talking a 10, 10, 10, 50 time price appreciation in the event of this best case scenario. But what I like about this story is they are in an area where such deposits can exist, and they are exploring in an area where it has been very difficult to look for such deposits, and they've brought to bear a new, innovative way of thinking about the geology. So there's a chance that what was overlooked by past exploration will come into the sites, and then once we have that, then, then of course, this stock uh, goes crazy. Yeah. Well, it, it could very well happen, for sure, and I might tell our listeners that, uh, John, you've been successful in the past in the Diamond Patch, and I, if, I don't know if for sure if you were uh, in the Voise Bay discovery or not. We covered it uh, very closely. In fact, that's Voises Bay helped launch my independent newsletter career. Yeah, if I'm not wrong, you might have actually been working at the time with Bob Bishop. Yes, I started with Bob Bishop for six uh-huh. months and then uh, I launched my own newsletter, which at the time was called the Bottom Fishing Report. Right, it was a exactly. Good time to launch the Bottom Fishing Report because we had a pretty good bull cycle from '94 uh, to '97. Well, we're, we're hoping that uh, one of these major discoveries will launch the next one. Let's go to another name, Sodilo Resources Limited. It's a company, uh, I think it's uh, in the southern portion of uh, the Anglo-Congo uh, Craton uh, in northwestern Botswana. I mean, Botswana is sort of scary to me, but what, what do you like about this story? Well, Botswana should not scare you. It is, in fact, the most stable country in Africa, and it derives most of its... Uh, Revenues, uh, national revenues from the diamond mines, uh, the Orapa mm-hmm. and the Schwaneng mine, operated by uh, De Beers. And now Lukara has the Karo mine, where they are finally pulling 100 to 200 carat diamonds out, out of this deposit that uh, De, Beers, uh, De Beers let go. Now, Sodilo uh, ended up in, in, in Botswana in, in, in the early part of the last decade looking at a kimberlite field. And what mm-hmm. they did was they you know, you use geophysics to find kimberlites under the Kalahari sands, and they found a bunch of kimberlites, but none of them had the diamond content to really justify advanced work. But while they were looking at the geophysics, they noticed an unusual degree of magnetic complexity, and they said, what is this? This is like supposed to be a worthless part of the, 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 the edge of the, the, the craton, and, uh, and there's nothing really here. And so they shifted focus and started exploring these, uh, these, these magnetic targets, and as a result, they've discovered a, a giant uh, banded iron formation system, uh, probably several billion tons. They'll have the first resource estimate out in, a, in, a, in about a month. And the Botswana government is very keen because it has all these coal fields in northeastern Botswana, and it wants to diversify out of diamonds and start a steelmaking industry. So it's very interesting in this. But in the course of examining the geology as they were drilling these targets, they realized we have a dead analog for the Zambian copper belt, and in mm. fact, this could be the unknown extension of this copper belt uh, 
uh, system. And the copper belt, as you know, has the richest copper cobalt collection of copper cobalt deposits in the world. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a good part of that is in the DRC, where you do not really want to be. And even yeah. Zambia, where first quantum was and still got, uh, got, got shafted, um, uh, finding a copper belt 40 kilometers by 10 kilometer system, this would be extraordinary. And Sodilo owns 100% of this, but First Quantum is earning 70%. So is First Quantum putting up more than, are they putting up 100% of the expenditures to get to their 70% or how does that work? Yes, uh, it is in effect a a carried interest to a production decision. They Uh finished the deal in August of last year. And since then, they have spent $8 million just collecting geological data, uh, drilling fences of holes lines of these holes just to collect stratigraphy information, like how does wow. the geology in this basin behave? They're not, uh. they're not even interested in, in, in hitting the deposit. Now they finished 200 uh, uh, widely spaced, a grid of widely spaced shallow holes, which are simply mapping the bedrock underneath the Kalahari sands and huh. what kind of geology is their alteration. And they're finishing a giant regional gravity survey, which they'll combine with their electromagnetic survey. And by the end of July, they'll be looking at all this and say, now, where there be monsters. And wow. hopefully we see big targets come in. And then the sort of the spearfishing exercise that the that, that June that investors and juniors like that begins in August as they start drilling targets that could deliver you know these uh, thirty million ton three percent type deposits and the instant they hit one of these confirming that this isn't just a similar geological setting but one where a similar grade and scale of deposit copper deposit evolved well then Sadila with only forty million shares outstanding. Uh, this could become a double-digit winner. Yeah, so it's, first uh, quantum, it, it would be big, too, because they would, in essence, control in a stable country with a reasonable government uh, uh, an entire copper belt. Yeah, very interesting, John. And I might just mention to our listeners that uh, the stock might appear to be a bit more expensive uh, than Arupa, but actually there are only 30.9 million shares out, uh, $1.35 today. I noticed it was up 10 cents earlier today. Uh, that gives it a market cap around $42 million. So if you do the exercise that you talked about with Arupa, we're looking at you have to multiply that market cap by about five times. They're comparable on both of these. Then very small cap, mini cap companies uh, with extraordinary potential. We underscore the word potential because in this business, Lord knows there's never a sure thing. That's for sure. But, John, these are two very, very interesting uh, ideas, and I see that we're out of time already, but I do want to get you back again sometime in the near future to talk about another company we talked about uh, recently when you were on EMC Metals Corp., and there's another one as well that's doing some interesting uh, interesting exploration work using new technologies uh, in uh, in Nevada, Nevada Exploration Inc., we want to talk to you about, too, as well. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, John, for coming on with us. And, you know, just to let our listeners know, again, go to Kaiser Research Online. If you want to know more about what John's talking about now, uh, before he comes on the next time, go there and uh, sign up for his service. And I, I think uh, you might be very pleasantly surprised. Um, never know in this business, but uh, thanks again, John, for being with us and giving us some really some very interesting ideas. Thank you, Jane. I look forward to our next session together. 
Likewise, I look forward to it. Well, folks, don't go away uh, because coming up next will be two former congressmen, uh, con- two former advisors to Congressman Ron Paul. We're talking. We're going to be talking to Jeff Deist and his. Uh, he was his chief of staff, and Daniel McAdams, who was his foreign policy advisor. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me two friends that I have learned to know thanks to Ron Paul. Both men worked for Dr. Paul when he was in Congress, uh, and I'm talking about Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams. Both of these uh, men have kept in contact with uh, Ron Paul uh, since he left office, uh, but in fact, uh, both men are continuing in one way or another to work with Dr. Paul uh, in his lifelong effort to educate Americans about the importance uh, of sound money and uh, obedience to the Constitution. Uh, important if you want to maintain liberty and prosperity and happiness. Jeff is now the president of the Mises Institute, which I strongly suggest listeners support. Uh, it's Mises.org, and I encourage you to go there. Um, there's a wealth of free information there. There's a lot of, uh, I think it's really a, a very improving uh, a website is becoming more interesting all the time. Lots of things there, audio-visual things in formats. There's essays there, uh, intellectuals, and a lot of people who, well, it's Austrian. It's Austrian school economics, and uh, but a lot of very valuable insights into uh, the the economy and and why things aren't aren't uh, really chugging along as they should be. Um, you know, Dr. Paul was one of the earliest supporters of the Mises Institute, uh, which is, of course, a legacy of the great Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises. And Ron is still very much involved with that organization. And then Daniel, who uh, is on this show frequently, we haven't had him on for a couple of weeks, but almost every week Daniel is with us. He heads up the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, and this is a, a, a very valuable website. I also suggest that people go to support uh, 
the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. If you uh, are in tune with and in uh, and in agreement with the Constitution, because again, uh, if it's uh, not constitutional, you won't get Dr. Paul supporting it or his name attached to it. Uh, but his views on limited government certainly extend beyond our borders. Uh, so I would say for a more comprehensive background, both uh, Jeff and Daniel have been with us many times in the past, and uh, their bios are at the uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times uh, site at Voice America Business Channel. So go there to read more about both of these gentlemen. And thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Daniel, for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. Absolutely. Really good to Really good to have both of you uh, with us. Uh, I'd like to start out with you, Jeff. And, uh, you know, we're supposed to, if we turn on CNBC uh, or Bloomberg or any of the mainstream media, they're telling us that, you know, the economy isn't real good, but it's it's getting better. Uh, and we're, you know, the, all these smart guys in Washington and the Federal Reserve and Wall Street, they're, they're pulling the right levers. It's just that we are disadvantaged in one way or another. We have things that have taken place that are beyond their control. Uh, but, you know, I was reading David Stockman. He pointed out yesterday on his blog uh, that we're now 77 months into the recovery, and yet he points out that outside of the health, education, and social services sector, uh, which are really fiscally dependent jobs, there has not been one single net new job created in those 77 months. Well, that's David Stockman. Uh, so you hear David's negative view of the of the world, and we hear the positive one all the time on the mainstream. Jeff, you're in touch with all these Austrian economists at the Mises Institute. What are they saying about the economy, and what are they uh, viewing as the prognosis for the uh, the American economy? Well, it's certainly troubling to hear Stockman say that. I mean, if you think of 77 months, and really when he refers to the recovery period, what he really means is the Fed-fueled nominal dollar recovery that's occurred since the crash of 07, 08. Yeah. Not, a, not any kind of real recovery uh, adjusted for inflation. So look, if you, if you get past you know, the Bloombergs and the CNBCs that you mentioned and just get to fundamentals, what is it about the American economy that's improving from a foundational standpoint. In other words, you know, for a while there, companies and individuals were shedding debt and improving their balance sheet. That's true. But beyond that, where is the, the increases, the increase in marginal productivity? Where are the new markets? Uh, where are the new products? Where's the new demand? Uh, all this has to occur, occur before the new jobs will come into being. So w- without uh, productivity... Uh, and without real creation, there's not much chance for a recovery, no matter how Washington tries to spin it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And uh, I don't mean to uh, suggest that David Stockman was was applauding uh, this economy by any means. He was basically, in fact, he had pointed out that there have been no job, no new net jobs created in those 77 months, except for the fiscally dependent health, education, and social services jobs. Uh, and uh, he also notes that during that 77-month period when he was in the Reagan administration, um, uh, I'm sure he wouldn't say it's because of him, but there were 152 times more jobs created in total uh, during that time frame. So uh, he's, he's definitely agreeing, I think, with you and, and the Mises Institute economists that this is uh, really not much of a recovery, if any recovery at all. But, you know, do you, do you see any, any chance of, of change in policy that might get us back into some growth mode? Or, or what has to happen, Jeff, before we start to see uh, America's economy on the mend again? 
Well, I think to paraphrase Mr. Stockman, first and foremost, we have to have honest pricing, and that means we have to have honest money. So until mm-hmm. the Fed backs off and stops pushing on a string, I mean, we're definitely seeing the limits, the ends of monetary policy at this point. There's, it, you know, there's not that much more the Fed can do. The minute they try to back off any, time, any type of QE, you get howls from the market uh, for people who want a sort of delusional uh, Dow 17,000 every morning when they wake up. So we've reached the end of monetary policy. So what we need to do now is start unpeeling the onion and getting back to a system where the where the dollar and the cost of borrowing are actually based on some sort of rational uh, market as opposed to fiat. That's a long way off. Um, it's going to be a very painful process. Uh, you know, uh, the only thing we can do is liquidate. There's there's so much bad debt, toxic debt sloshing around in the system still, especially in the derivatives and in the mortgage industry. Um, it, you know, I wish I had an easy answer for you, but I, I'm afraid in short, the answer is we would need the government to back off and we would need the Fed to back off. And as a country, as a nation, we'd all need to endure several years of pain, uh, unfortunately, more than we, we would have if the government hadn't reinflated everything in 08. Um, but the recession is the, is the cure. It's not the symptom. It's the cure for what the government's done to us. Yeah, well, if we were to um, unpeel that onion, as you say, uh, I'm wondering to what extent uh, that might impact our foreign policy. Uh, we, we're seeing the dreadful uh, treatment that our uh, that our returning veterans have been getting uh, in the uh, veterans' hospitals. Uh, it's a horror story there. Some people have suggested that that's what we might look forward to uh, with Obamacare. In fact, that might be a prelude to what we have coming as the onion is peeled back, Jeff. I would like to ask you, Jeff, what sort of percentage of the U.S. budget uh, is involved in military action? Do you have a sort of a general sense of it? I think I've asked you this question before, but I, I don't recall. Well, it depends on how you, uh, you know, how you come up with the stats, as with many things the government does. Uh, if technically, officially, the actual DOD budget is something along the lines of $520 billion, I believe, for FY13. Uh-huh. Uh, when you add in all kinds of nefarious things, including State Department spending, foreign aid spending, uh, quasi-military spending that, that exists in places like the Homeland Security Dep- Department, it's really kind of an amorphous sum. It's hard to put your finger on it. Uh, and I know Daniel and I had, had worked on this years ago when we were working for Ron. I mean, we were always convinced that the real number was somewhat clo- closer to $1 trillion a year. But wow. if, you figure, if you figure that right now our annual federal spending is about $3.7 trillion, uh, that gives you a sense that really after Social Security uh, and uh, HHS, you know, welfare and Medicare, uh, defense is right up there after those three. Well, you know, I mean, the argument that's made by those that want more military spending all the time is they throw it back at the people that would like to cut back, and they say, well, what are you? Are you against, uh, are you against uh, safety? Are you against defending your country? Are you against uh, uh, a strong defense? What's the matter with you? You must be uh, un-American. So here, here's a thought I'd like to put past you, Daniel. And, you know, it was a thought, really interesting reading uh, Richard Mayberry's last newsletter that just came out the other day, and he's talking about there are two kinds of defenses, defense systems. And he says, as far as he knows, there's only one country that practices the one. It's the Swiss system. That would be Switzerland. And then there's the Roman system. And the Swiss system basically suggests that uh, it doesn't need to get go outside its own borders. It can simply 
have everybody defend their own house, their own castle, defend themselves, be armed, learn how to use those those guns effectively. And he points out that it that has been the the safest defense system ever created. The Swiss have avoided military conflicts when they're right in the middle of all the horrible stuff that went on in, in Europe during World War II and earlier as well, World War I. Uh, and yet, um, you know, almost every nation under the sun, to a greater or lesser degree, practices a Roman system in which you go outside of your own borders with military, uh, with a strong military, and start to uh, entangle yourselves in other people's uh, business. Uh, so I'm sure, Daniel, I know that you would say we don't necessarily have a defensive military. We probably have an offensive military. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would guess that's your view. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, the, um, the argument would be, well, the Swiss have a peculiar geography which allows them to be that way. But when you think about it, so does the U.S. You know, we're surrounded by two big <laughs> oceans. Uh, in a way, you could say it's analogous to the Swiss situation. And if only we would adopt a defensive uh, military uh, perspective, I mean, we could slice probably 90% out of military spending. And, uh, you know, back to Jeff's point, he makes a good point. And back at the time, say the early 2000s, you know, there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, in- including State Department in this military spending is ridiculous, it's diplomacy, etc. But something that people didn't really notice is under Hillary Clinton, there was a huge move to integrate um, what state does, let me just back up a second, you know, traditionally the military is basically what's used when diplomacy fails. Mm-hmm. You know, if state fails, DOD has to come in, you know, that's sort of how it goes. But what, what Hillary particularly did was really integrate the functions of the State Department into the military and mm-hmm. turn the State Department into an arm of the military. So I would think now in, in these days, certainly it's continued by Kerry and then some, so you, you, you can no longer even say, well, it's not fair to count state in because state doesn't do diplomacy anymore. You know, they, they do selfies with hashtags and they coordinate with the military. You yeah. know, that's, that's what they do. So, you know, you, you have this, um, this bizarre situation where the U.S. is now putting troops on the border with Russia. They're conducting military exercises in Latvia as we speak on Russia's doorstep, you know, overflying B-52s. And just provoking the rest of the world, and um, and talk about destroying our economy. You know, it's uh, it's that's the number one way to do it. Yeah, you know, I I find it very very interesting and very important what's going on in the Ukraine and the relationship between the United States and Russia. But um, you know, Russia and China seem to be increasing it, trade arrangements. Uh, and the BRIC countries as well seem to be pulling together an alternative banking system, uh, and even their own sort of IMF they're they're looking to pull together in in some sort of way. They seem to be tired of of having the United States and the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know, I think they're just trying to protect themselves. But Daniel, I'd like to ask you about an article um, or a comment, I guess, that Ron made uh, talking about this neocon uh, Krauthammer, who's always on Fox, it seems, always on Fox television. Um, he, he is, he, the, the neocons, um, you know, that uh, Krauthammer has expressed concerns uh, that we need to start using, that we, that, we, that we really have to take a stronger position with respect to Russia. And I guess Krauthammer and the rest of them would like to go in and, and basically take over uh, take over the whole country there, the Ukraine. Uh, what what's going on here? And, and could you comment on what Dr. Paul recently said regarding Krauthammer on uh, on Ron Paul television? 
Sure. Well, the, you know, the thing about Cryhammer, I mean, as usual, the neocons get everything wrong, yet, as you say, they're still on TV constantly. Yeah. You know, his, his ridiculous analysis is that the Russia-China trade deal, whereby it's, it's a $400 billion deal which will build a natural gas pipeline uh, from, the, from, the, from Russia to China and deliver some, some very badly needed energy to China, uh, and uh, he says that, well, the fact that they signed this deal is a, is a signif- signification of the loss of U.S. influence in the world. Therefore, you know, basically, as you say, we have to redouble our aggressive efforts around the world. But what he completely misreads is that the whole idea of, of Russia and China falling into each other's arms uh, was only achieved by the aggressive foreign policy of the U.S. in the first place. You know, if the U.S. had not been pushing sanctions on Russia, uh, backing up a, 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 a newly aggressive Japan against China over some stupid rocks, although resource-rich stupid rocks, uh, if the U.S. hadn't been doing all of these things, it could have found a way uh, to, to perhaps uh, benefit from relationships with Russia and China. So they're doing, they're doing exactly... Um, what they're doing exactly is what pushes these two together, and then they complain that it signifies a lack of influence. So it's, it's just, uh, you know, as usual, they get everything wrong. Jeff, um, David, uh, I'm trying to remember his first name, uh, Richard Duncan has been on this show a couple of times. Uh, and getting back to the issue of sound money, which, of course, the unsound money has made it possible to finance this uh, the kind of activity that we've been involved with uh, internationally with our military and uh, basically f- forcing nations to accept the dollar, I believe, uh, and amongst other things, other deals. But um, Duncan makes the case, and I, I want to ask you what uh, the economist at the Mises uh, would say about this, but Duncan makes the case that we had to, uh, that, that it was good that we had uh, t- gotten off the gold standard we could create endless amounts of money, and that was necessary to defeat the Soviet Union. What are, do you have any thoughts on that, or, and what might be some of the thoughts that uh, might come from some of the economists at uh, Mises, Jeff? Well, that's an odd comment, to, to put it mildly. I mean, Rothbard talks about this in his uh, small, almost pamphlet, What Has Government Done to Our Money? You know, the, the actual supply of money per se, meaning uh, if, if the supply was constrained, i.e. backed by gold, is irrelevant. What matters is is valuation on any given day. So what we want is a stable store of value, something that uh, governments can't simply sort of create at will to cause all the dislocations and misallocations that happen when all of a sudden, for instance, the Fed uh, you know expands the money supply markedly from the 2001 tech crash into the mid 2000s and creates the housing bubble. So, you know, when he says that, uh, you know, it's good that we got off the gold standard because we were able to feed the world or feed, feed the starving kids in, in, in Russia or something is really pretty absurd. What matters is not uh, how many dollars exist in an economy. What matters is how much real wealth in the form of stuff and in the form of, of real productivity exists. So mm-hmm. the fact that we're trading uh, gold or seashells or dollars in a certain sense is not the issue. The, the issue is whether money uh, has real value, and gold has proven that it does. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, whether we're, you know, we're, we're trading and, and having a truly productive economy as opposed to one based on smoke and mirrors, which is the one we've got now, and uh, it's, it's feeding us, 
uh, it's feeding us on credit, it's feeding us on debt, it's feeding us on the the backing of the U.S. military for the U.S. dollar. It's feeding us on the backs of OPEC, which still requires uh, nations around the world to have dollars to, to buy oil. But all of those things are coming to an end. So at some point, we're going to have to get back to uh, feeding ourselves, to put it, put it a certain way. We're going to start producing things ourselves in, in America then again. And, uh, but I'm wondering if there's, I mean, what Duncan was basically saying is the reason we were able to prevail over the Soviet Union, and I would make the argument now that we're turning into a kind of a Soviet Union, our mentality seems to be every bit as aggressive as theirs was during the Cold War. But, but Duncan is saying the reason that Reagan prevailed over the Soviet Union that, that, that we as a nation did was, would not have been possible if we hadn't uh, printed so much money and if we were, uh, if we were um, held under the gold standard. But, but if I hear you right, you're saying that's nonsense. Well, it's possible that uh, Reagan's deficits would have been impossible. I, I, I fail to see how anyone could argue that that would be a bad thing. Um, yeah. In other words, it might have been true that Reagan would have had to be honest about his military buildup and the uh-huh. cost involved and actually ask people to pay for it in present-day <laughs> taxes, in which yeah. case he would never have gotten what he wanted. And, of course, what, we, what was proven years later is that the Cold War was a farce, is that the, so, the, the much-vaunted Soviet warheads were rusting in their silos. Most of them didn't work. Uh, the, you know, the tanks broke down, uh, and the people within Russia that itself, herself, were starving to death. So this, the, the Cold War was a, a form of mass hysteria imposed on people. So the fact that Reagan won it, um, it seems like an awfully uh, dubious thing to celebrate. Yeah. Well, for sure, uh, if we are destroying ourselves in the process of, uh, you know, uh, by uh, going bankrupt, uh, I think it was President Eisenhower that that noted that most nations destroy themselves from within, and it certainly seems to be uh, be happening uh, right now. Although, of course, the media would have us all believe that things are are going to be okay. But you know, if you look at uh, if you really look at what's going on, you have to dig a little bit. You can't just rely on the mainstream. But if you go to the Mises dot uh, org or you go to uh, you go go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. You'll learn some things that are completely different from what you hear uh, amongst our own is Vestia or Pravda type of uh, propaganda tools that we have on CNBC and elsewhere. But um, Daniel, you know uh, this thing in the Ukraine. It seems to have settled down a little bit now. Um, do we have peace there, or what's going on? Well, it's not settled down at all. In fact, the uh the new president in Kiev has upped the military at attacks against the uh, people in the east who don't want to be part of the country anymore, and uh, he's uh, he's upping the violence. So I, there's nothing slowing down. It's just that the U.S. media starts to ignore it when the narrative uh, doesn't seem to fit its view. But you know, Jay, if I can if I can switch a little bit, you know, the big story today, and and I hesitate to be too dramatic, but this may be the most important event since 9/11. Uh, is that the second largest city in Iraq has fallen to Al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, Mosul was taken over today by ISIS, uh, who went, who is a Syrian-based organization that has benefited from the U.S. assistance to the so-called rebels in Syria, and now they've used that to go and take over and occupy uh, the second largest city in Iraq. So this is huh. almost a Saigon moment. And if anything shows the folly of U.S. interventionism, the disaster of U.S. interventionism, it's Al-Qaeda's impending victory in Iraq. So 
How's that for irony? Well, I mean, uh, is this anything? Has this story at all caught the mainstream media today, I wonder? Oh, it's percolating. It's absolutely percolating. The New York Times has a piece out. Okay. Uh, Liz Sly of the Washington Post has a picture of the ISIS um, in some U.S.-supplied Humvees that they've helped themselves to. So this is, this is uh, slowly breaking over today, but this is a huge, huge story. And uh, Maliki in Iraq, his, his, his army simply melted, and now he's, he's saying he's going to arm civilians and have them go in there and try to take it back. So I'll be darned. Absolute disaster. It's absolute chaos and anarchy. It sounds like um, the wheels are falling off of. But uh, didn't we have a president go on a on a ship on a warship and tell us that everything was that we had won? Uh, and, and, I don't know what we've what we've won. Uh, and how looks to me that Hillary Clinton says, "Well, if I had it to do over again, I would have opposed the Iraq War." Oh, really? <laughs> Is that what she's said. saying now? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, with the, uh, she might just uh, open her eyes and listen to some people other than the people that are paying for her next run for president. Uh, <laughs> maybe uh, start start with uh, with some independent thinking. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, this is how how is this thing going to play out? I mean, it seems to me. Uh, we got more Americans on food stamps than ever before. I believe that's right. Uh, there are fewer jobs than we've had in a couple of decades. Um, where is the tax base going to come from? Uh, if if uh, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts is right, the Fed is lying to us about tapering. Roberts says there's, and he provides very great evidence. I, I played uh, his comments on my show last week. Very substantial evidence, in fact, that uh, that money is being recycled back through Belgium to buy U.S. Treasuries so that, in fact, they're keeping interest rates low even as the Fed is supposedly pulling back uh, and not creating as much money. How do you think this thing is going to play out? I mean, it's, it's just hard to say, and, and what should we be doing? Well, it's a game of musical chairs, right? Nobody wants to be the last person caught holding a bunch of U.S. dollars, and, and the question becomes, what happens if we uh, offer U.S. Treasuries and nobody comes to buy them, right? That's the point at which we'll know. And that has happened in part um, a, a couple of times already, and that's why there's been periods where the Fed was buying about, about 60% of all U.S. debt offerings. So um, there's going to come a point where the Japanese or the Chinese or the Russians or, uh, or uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries, any of the countries that have huge uh, holdings of U.S. dollars are going to have to make a decision to start unwinding their holdings and whether they do that faster or slower might be a strategic uh, a matter. In other words, one where they're trying not to draw attention to it. But uh, you know, n- nonetheless, we know the end is coming, whether it'll happen quite rapidly over a period of just a few months or whether it'll be a 10 or 20 year uh, a loss of value in the dollar. Uh, take somebody smarter than me to figure out. Uh, and whoever does figure that out is going to become very rich, I would suppose, shorting the dollar. But uh, in, in the meantime, uh, the, the, uh, the facts and the laws of economics are such that we know, um, you know that you can't make yourself richer just by printing something. If that was true, Apple would just triple their, the amount of stock they have on offer uh, every week instead, yeah. of, uh, instead of just once in a while. Yeah, indeed. Well, I, we only got a, a couple of minutes left here yet, but I just throw this idea out uh, with respect to what's going on geopolitically. 
uh, globally, it seems to me that we are very close to some sort of a tectonic turn. Paul Volcker called for a new Bretton Woods last week, I believe, suggesting that uh, we're, we're getting very near a turn. I had, uh, had James Rickards on the show a few weeks back, and he's suggesting that uh, that this whole process towards a currency reset is accelerating. You, there's a growing, comp- uh, go- growing trade cooperation between China and Russia as hostilities towards the United States and NATO are increasing from that part of the world. Um, Daniel, how crucial, with a minute left or so, how crucial is this Ukrainian situation uh, in this whole equation of, uh, of NATO versus the, uh, the East? Well, the U.S. has shown itself to be increasingly aggressive. We had John McCain in Bulgaria this past week demanding that the Bulgarian government stop uh, construction on the South Stream pipeline, which carries natural gas from Russia into Western Europe. The U.S. is trying to do whatever it can to short-sheet Russia, and what they're going to end up doing is freeze all the poor Austrians out in the wintertime. So uh, they're not backing down. If anything, they're turning it up. All right. Well, unfortunately, we've got to leave it go at that. But thank you both, both of you, for joining me. It's been a pleasure having you on the show together, uh, and I hope we can do it again sometime in the near future. Thanks, both Jeff Deist and and uh, Daniel McAdams. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks much. Bye bye. Okay, Jay. Bye. Thank you. Well, uh, folks, uh, that is all for the first hour of today's show. But there is more to come at jtaylormedia.com. I want to thank Tacy Trump and. Uh, my producer and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. But uh, you go to Jay Taylor Media, and you're going to hear from Larry Edelson, David Jensen, and I'll have some of my own ideas about some stock picks that I think could do very well in the near future. So go immediately, jtaylormedia.com. I'll see you there. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 